There's no worse feeling than thinking you've got an extra two, three minutes and then you're just, you're just called to the fore. Sorry about that, Luke. I, 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 can, own, I can own that one. That was, that was on me. Uh, getting, uh, as, as y'all, have, was everyone here this morning during second service when uh, the issue with the iPad? We're, we're going to get it worked out. We're, we're working through a, a couple of glitches, but I hope that um, doing some things in this unique way will be beneficial and will, uh, will help us. So um, we, we are, um, I apologize we're not singing this one tonight. Last week that was amazing. We are going to continue singing the Psalms from week to week. But we're going to look at a few more things in Psalm 37 tonight. And before we get into it, I, I want to ask a question. And I think depending on how we answer this question, our, our posture and our mode of activity will vary greatly in the world. The question is this, is this my father's world? Is Jesus the highest authority? Or is the world a lost cause? Does the world belong to Satan? Depending on how we answer that question, it will change our posture and it will change our activity in this world greatly. When Jesus was getting ready to leave the world... And I mentioned this last week. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's mine. Then he ascended to the highest place. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 at the very end that Jesus, in his triumph over the grave and in his ascension, was raised far above all rule and authority and every name that is named and was seated at the right hand of God. He is in the highest place and he has all authority. And when Jesus sat on his throne in the book of Revelation, he said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus did not ascend to the right hand of God to retire. He did not ascend to the right hand of God to be a stoic figure who sits there and looks down on the creation and watches as things roll out. He is seated there and he is reigning as king. And what he has done is, as king, he has given marching orders to us, his servants. Jesus said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And when I was younger, I heard the prayer and I thought, we don't need to say that anymore because the kingdom has come. The kingdom's already come and I do believe that it did come 2,000 years ago. And yet we can continue to pray, Father, let your kingdom come because the reign of Jesus Christ has not reached into every heart. 
It hasn't reached into every institution. It hasn't reached into every way and every mode of life. There are so many places that need to see the reign of Jesus Christ. There are so many persons who have yet to bow their knees to him. Paul said in Philippians, every knee should be bowing. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. It doesn't mean that every knee is bowing. And as the church who exists in this world, we are bringing the kingdom. It's here, yes. But we are bringing it in a fuller and fuller way every time that we interact with the lost world and shine the light of Jesus on them. So I have a, a few points that I want to make tonight about what should we be doing? And last week, I hope that was practical. We looked at six steps. What should we do in this world? Well, don't worry, number one. Look out and you see the chaos? Don't worry. Why? Jesus is the authority, and he is in control. So we need not worry. We are to forsake wrath. Why? Because dealing with wrath is not our thing to do. It's God's. God will deal with it. God will settle the evildoers. I don't need to get myself in a frenzy. Forsake wrath. We are to trust in the Lord. Even when things are bleak, even when things don't look good, trust in God Almighty. How many times in Scripture did we see a, a, a bleak prospect that God just powered through? In the most amazing ways. So trust in the Lord. Continue to do good. Even if all your peers are doing bad. Continue to do good. Lead by way of doing good. Dwell in the land. And befriend faithfulness. And that fifth one. Dwell in the land. Is one that I want to make particular note of. I think about our purpose and our call. As Christians. We are called to change the landscape of the world we are called to bring the kingdom of jesus christ into the world jesus said you're the light of the world what does light do it shines it exposes dark corners it, it shows what darkness really is and it shines light on it not only to expose the wrong but to show the right so that those in darkness can see their way out now, some will close their eyes because it doesn't feel good to have a light shined on them or shone on them when they've been sleeping in the dark for a long time. We know how it feels, and yet we're called to shine the light. We're called to be the salt, not just of our homes, salt of the earth. We are the seasoning of the earth. If not for us, then who? So there's a big task, but... God is in control, and he's given us some practical, simple, straightforward methods. And Psalm 37 really is about how the people of God will inherit this land. What can we do? If, if Satan has taken some by force, and if Satan has blinded some, and if many are asleep because of him, and if he is operating under a false authority, which he is, Satan would have the world think that he had all power. All he has is deception and smoke screens. And it's enough to make many sleep. But what are we to do? What can we do within it? Well, we can do a lot. And I want to show you that this is what this psalm 
is really about. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. And then notice right here at the beginning of this psalm, he says, dwell in the land. I made a point about this last week. The temptation when things get dark is to retreat. The temptation is to say, we'll back off for a while. We'll hide away for a while. We'll flee to the mountains for a while. We will get away from civilization for a while. He says, dwell in the land. Dwell in the land. Stay, remain in the land. Remain where the chaos is and do these things. And This is what this psalm is about. Look at this. Down in verse 9, the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. So he says, dwell in the land. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. Does that ring any bells? Does that ring a bell in maybe the ministry of Jesus the Christ? Maybe some of the first things that he ever said? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Jesus drew his theology from Psalm 37. Down in verse 22, those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and notice this, keep his way, keep the way of God, keep going the path of God and he will exalt you to inherit the land you will look on when the wicked are cut off do you see that this psalm beginning to end is about inherit inheriting the land and so everything in this psalm is here's what you do I, there, there are all kinds of books written about church growth. There are all kinds of philosophies and ideas. Some of them are super complex. Some, I just, I look at Psalm 37. I say, what did God say? What should we be doing? Well, it was the six things we looked at last week, and it's these three things that we're going to briefly look at tonight. The first one is in Psalm 37 and verse 4. This is... This is one of my favorite because how often did God bring the victory through means the world would say were foolish? How did Gideon have his victory? 32,000 is too many. Let's cut it down to 300. And you think, wow, they're gonna, the 300 are going to go out and just slay this massive army. They... God won in a, a way that the world said, well, that's a foolish way of winning. But who won? Who was the victor? God was. And the gospel and the call of Christ and so many of the things that we are challenged with, the world would say, that's a foolish means. That's how you're going to win the world. That's how you're going to change them. Yes. We believe the words of the living God. And in Psalm 37 and verse 4, this is what he says. Here is how we win the world. Here's how we inherit the land. Delight yourself in the Lord. <laughs> Delight yourself in the Lord. This is how you do it. Imagine, first of all, imagine trying to win the world. Imagine we go out with a gospel message that we don't find particularly attractive. Imagine going out with a gospel message 
that we consider to be mundane or that bores us. Imagine if we go out and it hasn't done much for us. In our lives, we still feel grim. We still have a disposition and an outlook, outlook on the world that's bleak. And we go out and we say, you should come. Come be a part of this kingdom. We don't particularly like the things that we're doing. And we're not particularly happy about them, but they're the truth. So come do them with us. I had a conversation the other day with Luke about the Matrix. And Luke, I had to bring it into my lesson tonight, we were talking about the, the Christian applications of the matrix. I don't know if anybody's ever seen it. I'm not advising it, but the, the matrix, in the matrix, there is an element of truth there that, that coincides with the Christian faith to a degree that there are some who are just fast asleep and there's a reality beyond them. They're being used by an enemy. The problem in the matrix is that when they're freed from this dark place and they go out into reality, reality is just as dark. I almost would rather remain asleep because the reality on the other side is there is no God. There is no paradise. They wake up to the way that the world really looks, and it's the truth, but it's a cold, hard truth. So going into the truth was no good for them. That's my way of looking at it. Ours is not that way. We have the truth, but the truth brings green pastures. The truth brings paradise. There is so much good to come. And so we delight in the Lord God. We look forward to what we have, and we look at what we have now. It's not just what's to come. We've received the inheritance now, and we experience it to a degree now. And so he says, delight yourself in the Lord. Now, I want to briefly, I want to ask three questions of this. Delight yourself in the Lord. First of all, what does that mean? Well, it means that you enjoy being around him. You delight in them. You, you want to be around them. You enjoy it. If you can be in the presence of God, that is an enjoyable thing for you. Not only that, but because you enjoy it, you pursue it. It's not a checklist. It's not ritual. It's not expectation of my peers or the culture around me that I must go and spend time in the presence of God. It's something that I enjoy, and therefore, it's something that I pursue. He's neither an afterthought, nor is he a minimum. It means that you don't fall asleep when you're talking to him. I have heard before, and I've, I've actually, oddly enough, this is a, a weird thing I've heard a lot of times in my 10 years of ministry, is that persons will say, I just fall asleep whenever I pray. And my first thing is, well, stop laying down when you're praying. That's just step one. Uh, get up, stand up, get on your knees if you must, do something. But the other thing that I, that I want to say is, imagine, would you be friends with somebody who every time they started talking to you fell asleep? Would you be friends with them? Would you? I wouldn't. Here's this guy. Every time he starts opening his mouth, he just falls asleep. The rest of the time, he's just asleep there. No. Being in the presence of God's an amazing thing. It's an awesome thing. And we ought to enjoy it. It means that God is on your mind. It means that you enjoy hearing him speak. 
you want to hear the words that come from his mouth. It means that you'd rather be with him than with anybody else. That's what it means to delight in him. The second question is, how do you develop a delight like that? Maybe you, I think there's a, you, cut, you go to the Psalms. I love the Psalms because the men were brutally honest. They would go to God and they'd say, here's where I'm at. Maybe tonight you're in a place where you say, I'm not. I, I don't find God to be the greatest delight in my world. There are other things, if I'm being honest, that delight me more. There are other things that excite me more. It isn't God. Maybe, you, maybe that's where you're at. So the question is, how do you learn to delight in them? Because we're commanded to do so. It's not a forced delight, it's a real delight. Well, open your eyes and look at them. That's what we do. Imagine, there's nobody, there is nobody who goes out into creation. Christian, uh, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, agnostic. There's nobody who goes out into the wilderness. I remember going in northern Minnesota, we'd go fishing up in the boundary waters on the border of Canada and Minnesota. There are thousands of lakes, literally. We'd hop on a lake, get in a, a canoe, and go across the lake, and then we would portage from one, like one stretch of land to another, hop on another lake, and just keep going deeper and deeper into the wilderness. You get so, back, so far back in there, you never see a person. And I remember one time waking up in the middle of the night and I decided to step out of my tent. Light pollution doesn't exist up there. And it was a clear night. And I saw more stars than I've ever imagined existed having lived in the city. The Milky Way looked like a cloud. It was so thick. And all I wanted to do was stare at it. Imagine, and, and here's, here's what strikes me. David saw this. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God. We look at the stars and we say, they are so glorious. And the Bible says, all the stars are doing is telling of the one who's truly glorious. They're a mere reflection. Imagine the glory of the being who could make such a glory as that. Imagine the glory of a being who could make Mount Everest. Mount Everest never ceases to say, God is so glorious. All day long it says it. Since the creation of the world, it's said it. Imagine the being who just imagined Mount Everest and spoke it into existence and spoke the Milky Way into existence. Some years ago, Miranda and I were traveling through, uh, uh, we were in Israel and we were in old, the old city of Jerusalem and we were walking through some streets and there are vendors that are selling uh, fresh oranges. They'll make you a cup of fresh squeezed orange juice right there on the side. So we pulled over and we, we asked this guy for a cup of fresh squeezed orange juice and he got six or seven of these big oranges that had been picked sometime very recently, they were still warmed by the sun. It was not refrigerated. It was just, and he squeezed this into the cup, and I took a drink, and I 
it thought this is the greatest thing I've ever tasted in my life. And then I thought, who is this God who could invent that flavor and then could invent the human tongue with receptors that could taste it? And then all man can come up with is tang. <laughs> or sunny delight. I, look, does anybody drink those anymore? I, I, I remember as a kid at VBS, we got the little, the little barrel with the, with the uh, silver top of, I think it was antifreeze. <laughs> this, this is what men are producing. God just spoke that into existence. He's awesome. Go into the Bible and look on the promises of God and look at the powerful hand of God and look at the God who declares the end from the beginning. From the beginning, he says, this is the way that it's going to be. Who, who calls a bird of prey from the east. This is from Isaiah. God, Isaiah says, God declares the end from the beginning. He says, that's how it's going to be. Before anything has happened, he calls a bird of prey from the east. What does that mean? It means that if there's an Elijah who's by the brook and he needs food, God says, bird, bring the food to him, right? Wasn't that one of the questions? I had a friend who was camping up in, uh, it was either Wisconsin or Minnesota. Was he and his brother, they were both Christians and they were camping with a, uh, one, of their, one of their friends and the friend was an atheist and one morning they're sitting around the fire and there was a crow that was sitting on a branch just above him and the crow was just going on and on just it's loud squawk just continually and the atheist mockingly said if there were a god he would make that bird shut up and just then, by my friend's testimony, who's a preacher of the gospel, a bald eagle swooped down, grabbed the crow, and flew off with it. So I said, is he a, is, did he become a Christian? He said, no. I, why not? I mean, look, this is the God that we serve. From where I'm sitting it's impossible not to delight in him. But it's a question of where are you looking? What is it that delights you? My third question of this is this psalm, verse 4, says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The temptation is to read a verse like this and to think that it's a genie in a bottle type situation. A lot of people put this to the test. I asked God. He didn't give me what I wanted. They try it a time or two. They say, see, contradiction. See, the Bible didn't do what it said that it would do. God didn't do what he said he would do. I don't think that there's a God. There's a big hole in the argument. What are the desires of a heart whose greatest delight is almighty God. You see how that changes it. The prerequisite for being granted the desires of your heart is that in your heart you desire God and you delight in him. And when you delight in him, in his way, 
in his path, in his timing, in his will, in his promises. He'll give you all the desires of your heart because you delight in him. So, delight in God. And then I'm just going to blitz through these last two points that I wanted to say uh, before we're finished. Because I wanted to put the time on that first one. We need to delight in God. He needs to be our highest joy, and the world needs to see it. If we're going to win the world, the world needs to see Christians really delight in God. They love God. What is it that they have that I don't have? If they see, if they see Christians who say Christ is the way, but they find their greatest delight in sports or some other thing, they're not going to, they're not going to trust it. But if they see a Christian whose greatest delight is God and they see true joy within it, they'll want to be a part of that. And we will win the world by that. And these two follow-up points are, are subsequent to it. They, they follow it. He says, commit your way to the Lord. That's really the, the key here. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. What does it mean to commit to God? Well, first of all, if he's my greatest delight, commitment is easy. I love him more than anything. I adore him. He's all powerful and he's all good and he fills me in a way that nothing in this world ever could. I didn't mean to rhyme there, but we can go ahead and write that down as a poem. will follow commitment will follow when God's my greatest delight committing to God means he's it it means I'm I'm not waffling any longer between two decisions I'm not committing to God when God's my greatest delight I'm not going to say, God, I want you, but I also want this over here. I know you said not to have this, but I got to have both. So I'm going to put one foot over here and one put foot over here. No, he says, commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way. That's your path. That means I'm dedicated to walking the path that God has laid before me. There is no indecision. There is no waffling. There was a man one time who was sitting on a fence with a foot in the devil's camp and a foot on the side of God. And all the day long, the angels of God were calling out to him, come over, come to the side of God. Won't you come over here? You'll be blessed. At the end of the day, he'd heard nothing from the side of the demons. And so he was questioning and he called out to the demons and said, Why have you said nothing? And one of them spoke up and said, The devil owns the fence. Indecision is not the Christian way. We must commit to God with a whole heart. And this will be easy when we understand that he's the highest good and that I cannot have two masters it will either be God, the highest good, or some other thing which is lesser. And if I can only have one, why would I choose the lesser? I'll choose the good. I'll choose God.
And lastly, we need to be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. God does not count slowness as humans do. God's timing is not as humans' timing is. And when we set forward as a church and as a people to do the things that he said to do in Psalm 37, keep doing good, keep dwelling in the land, keep trusting in God. If we set forward to do these things, we must know that there's also great value in stillness. I'm not tasked with bringing about the growth. I don't have the power to do it. No man does. Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. There were ministries in the Old Testament where a man of God did everything God told him to do and there was no fruit born in the entirety of his life. What am I called to do? What are you called? We're called to just do these things and God will sort out the rest. Delight yourself in Almighty God. Commit your way to him. And then when the world is going chaotic all around us, we can look to God and be still. He is in control. He is the highest authority. He will sort these things out in his time. I simply must press forward, committed to this one direction, doing good in the face of evil, trusting in God when all doubts seem to be against me. And if we will do that, I believe that we will win the world. If you have a need, if you want to know Jesus the Christ better, if you want to commit your life to him, there's an opportunity to do that now, but I would also remind you that you don't have to do it by coming to the front. I know some will never make that long journey. It's a long journey down to the very front pew, but you can also take one of the leaders after the fact, get someone over to the side and speak to them, or you can get right with the Lord in your own heart of hearts right here and now while we stand and sing.